Gum here. Joy and Steve and Adina Malka and Mom and Steve and Donna and Donna and Fred and Susan and hopefully Richard and Paul and Lisa and Sarah and Lisa and Ekaterina. Welcome. This is Torah Studies, my friend. This is Torah Studies. And in Torah Studies, as the name would suggest, we study Torah. Specifically, the Parshat Hashavua, the Torah portion of the week. The Torah portion this week is Pekudeh, and we have a lot to talk about. So let's jump right in. The Torah portion of Pekudeh is the last section, the last portion in the book of Exodus, and it talks about the conclusion of the construction of the Mishkan, how the tabernacle was built, and how everything was audited, how all of the donations, how everything was accounted for. Moses made an audit. The commentaries say he, well, there's different versions of how the story played out. Either there were, there were individuals who kind of uh, um, expressed some suspicion about Moses suddenly you know, getting a little bit of money, and so they thought maybe he had pocketed some of the cash. Truth is, that's not what happened. And other, or he just did it unilaterally. Either way, Moses um, puts out to the people exactly what came in, exactly what it was used for, and is very transparent. So that's what's going on in the beginning of the, of the Torah portion. Pekude means counting. These are the accounts, the accounting. Basically, trans, open books, transparent audit. So that's what happens at the beginning of the Torah portion. And then the Torah portion continues to discuss how everything was built and all the, the Mishkan items, the actual structure was built, and the vessels were built, including the ark and the altar and the menorah and all that stuff. And then how the clothing was made and how everything was brought to Moses and it was done and it was perfect. But there's, a, there's an oddity in the opening verse of this week's Torah portion. Something very strange appears. And we're going to focus on this, and it's, it's going to form the crux of today's class. Today's class, if you saw my, the email that I sent out not that long ago, a little bit, maybe about an hour ago, sent out an email that the subject was about immortality. We're going to talk about immortality, the idea of nitzchiyut, the idea of things that are... Um, indestructible, things that are immortal, things that are unbreakable. That's going to be the theme of tonight's, tonight's conversation. And you'll see how that, how that um, connects in a moment. So we're going to begin by reading and analyzing the opening verse of the Torah portion. So let's begin. You know what, Marnie, if you don't mind, uh, but give me a second. I'm going to pull this up on the screen, and then I'm going to ask you to take it away. No, no, not the other. Just text number one on page 133, but give me a moment to get myself ready for everybody here. Um, here we go. I am ready for this. Three, two, one. Okay, text number one, Exodus 38, 21. Marnie, please take away nice and loud. The Mishkan collateral. These are the numbers of the Mishkan, the Mishkan of the testimony, which were, were counted at, at Moses' command. This was the work of the Levites under the direction of Itamar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen. Okay, so that's the opening verse. And again, it, it, it lays out there, it, it kind of leads into this idea of the, of the audit. These are the numbers of the Mishkan. In other words, the number of the count, the number of what was donated. This amount of gold, this amount of silver, this amount of copper, this is what it was used for, etc. Uh, but there's something strange. There's something strange about this opening verse. Can anybody identify what is strange about this opening verse? What is strange about the language of this opening verse? Jump in. Open mic. What do you guys think? What's strange? What, what strikes you as being a little bit odd about the opening verse? Numbers of the Mishkan, meaning it sounds like how many Mishkans are there as opposed to what was donated. Okay, good, good, good. What else? What else? What else? Well, there's work of the Levites. Okay, work of the Levites. Good. What was that? Right. So, did the Levites do the work? Or were other people involved? Okay, good. What else? And the, and the son of Aaron uh, was the. It was the. the it, it said the Mishkan twice. It says Mishkan. Okay, good. It says Mishkan twice. Good. Okay, good. Let's focus on that one. It says Mishkan twice. In the Hebrew, if you read the Hebrew, it says, Ela Pekudeya Mishkan, Mishkan Ha'edus. Ela Pekudeya Mishkan, these are the count, this is the count, the accounting of the Mishkan, 
Mishkan Heidus, the Mishkan of the testimony. Why is Mishkan twice? They could have just said, Eila Pekudei Mishkan Heidus. These are the numbers of the Mishkan of the testimony. Why does it say these are the numbers of the Mishkan? The Mishkan of the testimony. It says Mishkan twice. It seems to be a little bit weird. It seems to be a little bit repetitive. Now we know that in Torah, everything is precise. There's no such thing as an extra word, an extra verse, an extra, not even an extra letter. It's not possible. If you study Talmud, which uh, is a, just a thrilling experience, so the Talmud gets into just so much deep analysis on every single letter of the Torah, every single word matters. And so it's inconceivable that the opening of this week's Torah portion would just, for flowery uh, language, just repeat the word Mishkan. These are the numbers of the Mishkan. Mishkan Aedos, the Mishkan of the testimony. Are you kidding me? Mishkan, ha Mishkan, Mishkan. What's the repetition? It should say, Mishkan This is the count. These are the numbers of the Mishkan of the testimony. What's, that? what's this Ha Mishkan, Mishkan? Does it doesn't make sense. So all the commentaries are wondering what's going on here. And there are many different um, explanations that are given. We're going to focus on a very classic angle, very classic explanation. And the class explanation, you got it? Oh. Didn't necessarily work out. Okay. All right. So, so um, we're going to focus on a classic Midrashic exposition, which can be found on page 133. This is text number two. And you know what, Elio, if you don't mind reading nice and loud, I'm going to put this up on the screen. And take it away, please. This is a really interesting explanation. Why is Mishkan Mishkan written twice? Rabbi Shmuel said that the temple is destined to be collateralized. Lehis Mashkain. Twice. In the first destruction and the second destruction. Therefore, it says Mishkan twice. All right, the Midrash says something, uh, I'm going to say a little bit cryptic. It says, Why is Mishkan repeated twice? Mishkan Mishkan. Lehit Mashkain. What does Lehit Mashkain mean? Because, so Mishkan means dwelling place or home for God. Mishkan means sanctuary, right? But lehit mashkein, mashkein also means collateral. So lehit mashkein means that there are two collaterals. What, now let's, 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 let's stop for a second. What is collateral? Not collateral damage. What's collateral? Collateral is... A mishka, yeah, a mashkein is collateral. Security, right? So what's security and collateral? So basically, let's say somebody lends somebody else money. And let's say the, the loan is $1,000, so then the, the borrower will give the lender something of $1,000 of value, theoretically, or something of value, that the, it could be held if he doesn't pay back the loan. Okay, so it's basically when you owe someone, so you give them something as collateral until you pay off the debt. So listen to this. The, the, the Midrash says that why is Mishkan Mishkan twice? Not Mishkan Mishkan. It's Mashkain. Lehit Mashkain. Collateral. There are two collaterals that were taken, the first temple and the second temple. What's the context of collateral? The collateral means, like, if you don't pay up, right, if you don't, if you don't follow your end of the deal, then you get the repo man, right? You get things repossessed. We had two temples that were repossessed. Does that make sense? Yeah, we had two temples. So Mishkan, Mishkan, it's like Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza? Mishkan, Mishkan? Yeah. Didn't think that was going to happen tonight. Mishkan, Mishkan. Mishkan, Mishkan, right? Mishkan, Mishkan. Um, so it's collateral, collateral, two forms of collateral that were taken again, and they were the first temple and the second temple because of our misdeeds. The temples were taken. Now, okay, first, at first glance, this seems like a random interpretation, right? Our Torah portion, let's just, let's just be very frank here. I mean, I'll be Rabbi Ari, but anyway, but let's just be, right, so can't, can't proceed without this stuff. So if we're being just very straightforward, the, the verse is talking about the audit of the materials donated for the building of the Mishkan, right? These were the items donated, this is the count, the number of items donated for the Mishkan, but it says Mishkan twice upon, so uh, on which the Midrash says, oh, it's not actually talking about the Mishkan, it's talking about the temples, the Mashkin, the collateral that was taken, two collaterals. Huh? What happened to the Mishkan and the count? Like, how did we get from the Mishkan to the temples? What's going on? So listen to this. Let me let me give you a perspective. 
according to the commentaries on the Midrash, the meaning, because you know that there are commentaries on commentaries, right? We know this, obviously, right? There's commentaries, and then on the commentaries, there are commentaries, and on those commentaries, like, I'll give you an example. So there's, um, there's the Talmud, which is explaining the Torah, obviously, right? The Talmud is not making up its own stuff. And then you have Rashi on the Talmud, but then, so you have the Torah, then Talmud, Talmud commentary, and then Rashi's commentary on the Talmud commentary on the Torah, and then there are many commentaries on Rashi's commentary, and the list goes on. The list goes on. So, the commentaries on the Midrash explain that what the Midrash is saying is the following. You ready for this? This is pretty powerful stuff. It was only the temples, the two temples that were destroyed, the Mishkan, is immortal. Oof. You ready for that? I'll say it again. When the Midrash says, when the Midrash says that the two uh, temples were taken as collateral, what does that have to do with the Mishkan? Ah, you ready? It was only the temples that were taken as collateral because of our misdeeds, but not the Mishkan. And let me say this very simply. The Mishkan, the tabernacle built by Moses and his crew, never got destroyed. And I know you're wondering, where is it? Where is it? Uh, let's read the text. Let's read the text. This is unbelievable. This is going to be text number three from the Talmud. But again, before we read the text, let me just tell you the big idea. On the verse that talks about the Mishkan and the audit of the Mishkan and uses the word Mishkan twice, we learn about the two temples that were taken as collateral for misdeeds, but the connection to the Mishkan is that although they were taken as collateral, they were destroyed, the Mishkan, Moses' tabernacle, never was compromised. Let's see this inside text. And by the way, it wasn't only Moses' Moses's tabernacle. It was also something that David built himself. King David in the temple later on that he built. But let's, let's do this inside. I've said too much. All right, text number three. Text number three. Uh, page 134. Linda, please take it away. Go for it. Nice and loud, please. Okay. Rav Hinana Bar Papa interpreted, what is the meaning of the verse? Rejoice in God, you righteous. Praise is comely for the upright. Navatila. Do not read the conclusion of the verse. As praises comely na'ava, rather read it as a house na'ava of praise. This is referring to Moses and David, whose enemies never laid their hands on their works. Do you want me to keep reading? Yeah, keep, there's, there's a bit of, a, of an exposition in the, in the words na'ava but I, would, would, I think it's fine. We get the upshot. The upshot is that there's something that Moses and David built that no enemy ever touched. Let's continue. With regard to David, it is written, her gates are sunk into the ground. As the gates of Jerusalem built by David, but sunk into the ground and were buried there before they could be destroyed by enemies. With regard to Moses, it is as Mar said, when the first temple was built, the tent of meeting was buried, including its boards, its clasps, and its bars, and its pillars, and its sockets. Where is it buried? Rav Chizda says that Avimi says, beneath the tunnels of a sanctuary. How incredibly awesomely mysterious is this? This is epic. This is epic. What we have here, I'm going to keep this text up for a second, and, and, and everyone can just keep on looking at this, if you'd like, is the following. The, temp, the, the Mishkan, the tabernacle built by Moses, never got destroyed. It was never compromised. It was never demolished. It was never broken. What happened to it? They took it apart because, you know, it was a portable sanctuary. They took it apart, and the pieces exist, buried underground in the secret temple tunnels. It's wild. You know Raiders of the Lost Ark? We need a Raiders of the Lost Tabernacle. Hello. Hello. Who was that guy? Who was, who was the guy? Harrison Ford. Call him up. How's Harrison Ford doing? He may be a little... Is he still alive? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. He's, half, he's happily married. He's alive and he's well. And, and, and who needs the last Ark if we have the... No, no, I'm kidding. Well, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big deal. No one's ever talked about this. Do, did we even know this? Did we even know this? I mean, this is from the Talmud. This is straight up Talmud, so it's, it's mainstream. This is not some fringe, uh, fringe idea. What happened to the tabernacle? Unlike the two temples that were destroyed, the tabernacle was never destroyed. The tabernacle was buried. 
It's portable, right? Have tabernacle will travel. And they, yeah, they put it underground. And that was it. So, and this was done ostensibly before the first temple was built. Just to give you a timeline, because I think it's helpful sometimes to get like a sense of time. So between, from, from the times of Moses until the first temple was built, so how many years? It was, um, I want to say, give me a second here. It was upwards of 500, 600, 700 years. It was, seven, it was like many centuries before the first temple was built. And then the first temple lasted 400 years. The second temple was built 70 years after that. It lasted 400. So the first temple was 410 years. Second temple lasted 420 years. So 410 plus 420 plus 70 plus other you know, centuries. It was a long time between when the tabernacle was built and when the second temple was destroyed. The point is that temples came and went. They were built and destroyed, both temples. But the tabernacle is forever. And that's the connection, that's the deeper understanding of the Midrash. The Midrash says, the Torah portion says, Mishkan, Mishkan. What's, what does it mean, Mishkan, Mishkan? It means that the two temples were taken as collateral. But what does that have to do with the Mishkan? Ah, the Mishkan was never taken as collateral. The tabernacle was never taken as collateral. That's, yeah. I'm, excuse me, I'm sorry. Are, are there, why haven't we had archaeologists digging and looking for it? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So, oh, good, 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 good. So Leo's asked the question, so why don't, why don't we dig and look? Excellent. By the way, it says not only is the Mishkan in those temples, you know what else is there? According to our tradition, at least, the Ark. The Ark. The legitimate Ark, yes. The Ark. Right, right. So why are we not sonaring, radaring, or otherwise scanning? Correct. I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. But this is what it says. Maimonides writes about this. The Talmud talks about this. I mean, the Talmud first and the Maimonides afterwards. But this is something that we have in our tradition. Has anyone looked? Look, there are stories. The Talmud says there are stories that people went down to the tunnels and they got harmed by, by getting too close. I mean, there's these kind of cautionary legends. I don't know. I, I, I've never been there. So, but this is, this is the, the, the legend of these items. The point is, and, and what we're going to operate with, is this idea that the Mishkan is eternal, but the temples were not eternal. And the question is why? Why did the Mishkan... Moses' tabernacle, why was that eternal and why were the other ones not eternal? Well, one answer we already gave, because the Mishkan was built by Moses, and it sounds like if Mo, when Mo, whatever Moses touches is forever. That's why. And David also. David directly built the doors of the gates, and I think we kind of missed that one, right? We just glossed over it. But those gates sunk into the ground and were preserved underground magically, miraculously, before the temple's destruction, and so they're preserved forever. So it seems like whatever Moses touches or David touches, those last forever. But as we'll see, there's a, an, another twist. The Svarno gives us commentary lived about 500 years ago. He gives us a little bit of an insight. I'm going to read this one, text number four. Take a look at this. He gives us another little bit of an angle on the things that remained eternal, immortal, as opposed to things that got destroyed. So... He, and he expounds on our opening verse. Remember, the opening verse says, Ela ha-mishkan. These are the counts. These are the countings, the audit of the Mishkan. Mishkan ha-edos, the Mishkan of testimony. So he explains on those words, Mishkan of testimony. What does that mean? The Torah relates, so text four, the Torah relates the qualities of the Mishkan that made it worthy of being eternal and not falling into the hands of our enemies. In other words, the Torah tells us why the Mishkan was eternal. Why it never got destroyed? Unlike the temples that got destroyed by the Babylonians and the Romans, why did the Mishkan never get destroyed? Here we go. The first reason is because it is the Mishkan of testimony. That is, it contained the tablets of the testimony. Listen to this. The Mishkan housed the tablets. And so because it housed the tablets, it merited to never be destroyed. The second, the second reason why it was eternal is that it was at Moses' command. It was on account of this. In other words, the fact that it was Moses who helped construct it, that the divine presence, Shekinah, rested on their handiwork and kept it from falling into their enemy's hands. So it was the Moses touch, not the Midas touch. The Moses touch, along with, just coining new expressions as we go along here, right? It was the Moses touch that, and coupled with the, the, um, the tablets of the testimony that were there, the ark with the tablets, that made it eternal. However, let's keep on going. He explains why the temples were destroyed. However, the Temple of Solomon, look at this, the Temple of Solomon was built by artisans from Tyre. Didn't we have that recently? We spoke about that, how King Solomon gave the message 
to for the lumber, and he was working with the art. We did like a few weeks ago one of these right. studies classes. Yeah. So it was built by artisans from a different country. The, the Mishkan was built by Moses and his crew, and the temple was where, built. Where was Tyre? Uh, I don't know. North, it's north, north, northwest. Uh, I mean, northeast. Northeast. Uh, Could be. I have to pull up an ancient map. I don't know. Hmm? You got one? No, I don't. <laughs> I just Google Tire Center. How do you spell it? Yeah, 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 Tire Center. Anyway, Tire, Tire. Yeah. So it was built by artists from Tire. Although the divine presence rested in it, it wore away its part. It wore away in parts. In other words, it it got. Um, got old and had to be replaced. It needed to be maintained, and eventually it fell into enemy hands. That was the first temple. The second temple, however, which met neither of these conditions, did not have the divine presence rested in it, and it fell into enemy's hands. For the second house was not a Michigan of testimony, that is, it did not have the tablets of the testimony, and it was constructed at Cyrus's command. So let me explain what's going on here. A tale of three sanctuaries. Sanctuary number one is called the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the portable sanctuary. It was built by Moses, and it housed the tablets. Boom, boom. Ding, ding. Checklist. It checks both of those boxes. Built by a dude, holy dude, and contained the tablets. Boom, boom. What about the first temple? Built by, I mean, Solomon, but a lot of the craftspeople were just from foreign countries and just artisans, not f directly done, you know, within the flock. So the first temple could not check that box of being built, you know, under holy, under holy auspices. And... Yeah, it had the tablets, it had the ark, but it only checked one of those boxes. Eventually, it fell. The second, second temple, the ark never came back. The first temple, the ark went underground. It never came back for the second temple. So it didn't have the ark with the tablets, and it was built by Cyrus, who was the random Persian king. I mean, not random. We think that he was the son or grandson of Esther, so, you know, whatever. But in the capacity as a Persian king. Yeah. You know how they made calls back in the day in, in ancient Persia? Persian to Persian. Try the veal. Don't forget to tip the waiters. All right, tip your waiters. Tires in Lebanon. There you go. But what part of Lebanon? Now, now you're now you're asking the tough questions, right? It's somewhere in Lebanon. Okay. So here's the point. It's in the northern part. Northern part. Okay. Okay. But but it, let's put it this way. It wasn't near the coast. Okay. But it wasn't. It wasn't a Jewish nation, and it wasn't done in like a whole, when I say holy, it wasn't done from the same type of reverence as Moses and his tabernacle crew. I don't know that they weren't living there, but I, I can imagine that it wasn't, it, it, does, it seems like he sent the message, we read in the Haftar, he sent the message to the king of, of, of Lebanon over there, or whoever was, whatever they call that nation, he sent the message to the king, you know, have your people, you know, uh, help with this project. So, I mean, it, it, it takes a village, but at the same time, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't within the same spiritual um, uh, uh, domain as the Mishkan. So, here's the point. The Mishkan was built by the hands of Moses and his crew. It, it had the ark with the tablets, both features. Therefore, it is eternal. This is how, how, um, how um, Vajas Sferno explains this. Whereas the first temple only had one of those qualities, the second temple had neither of those qualities, and thus they fell. So, bottom line, as we kind of conclude this first idea, it's very important to understand what we've done so far. We, it, we read the opening verse. It talks about, the counting of the Mishkan, Mishkan, twice Mishkan. The Midrash says, why twice Mishkan? Because it's an allusion, it's a hint to the fact that the two temples, not the Mishkan, the two temples would be destroyed, taken as collateral for our sins, if you will. Um, but the, the flip side is, or the, the, the contrast, the unspoken contrast is that the Mishkan, built by Moses, never got destroyed. We said, why? Because it has an ark, it has Moses' touch on it, and thus it never got destroyed. So... Okay, fine. So my, here's my question. We got the idea. The idea is the Mishkan was never destroyed. The temples were fine. Here's my question. What a weird way to give a compliment to the Mishkan. Right? It's a very bizarre way. It's like, you know how great the Mishkan is? These two temples were destroyed. And we don't even mention that this one wasn't. It's kind of like, it's like, a, it's like we're backing into the compliment. It's like, oh, you know what? It says Mishkan twice because the two temples were destroyed. They were the Lehit uh, Mashkain. They were taken as collateral, and the, and the, and the Mishkan wasn't. So these were, um, these were taken, and this one wasn't. And that's 
telling us about the Mishkan. So, like, why why is it said in, in a very bizarre way? Why are we talking about the temples when we're directly dealing with the Mishkan? It should have just said the Mishkan was eternal. It, it, it's something strange about this whole construct of this idea. That's number one. And number two, the second question is, what does it mean for us that we know today? Let's say you and I walk away from this class, and you know what? Somewhere in Jerusalem, under the Temple Mount, is hidden the Tabernacle of Moses. What does that do for our lives? Right? What does that do for us? Like, I mean, unless we're putting on our explorer hat and going, right, which might be cool. I'm not discounting that. But, like, what, what's the personal message? So let's go a little bit deeper. Let's, all puns intended or whatever, let's dig a little bit deeper to try to discover the, um, the, the depth of this. So we're going to, to, un- to unlock the secret, and this is going to be an unbelievable idea. To unlock the secret, we're going to read text five. I'm going to read this and give a little bit of commentary as we go along here. Text number five, this comes from the Rebbe's teachings. All right, and he, oh, oh so before, oh, hold on, before I read this, let me give you a little, little background context that there's a, there's a general idea, this is brought down in many sources, countless sources, that the Mishkan is a template for how you and I can create space for God in our lives. I'll say that again. Every one of us, I mean, I'll say it in different words, we're each supposed to create a space for God in our lives. Right? We're supposed to be the Mishkan. We're supposed to be the Mikdash. We're supposed to be the temple, the sanctuary, the tabernacle. We are supposed to be a home for God. Right? We are supposed to be a space within which God feels comfortable. And we can learn lessons from how the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was actually set up to, to understand how we work internally and how we can create space for God in our lives. In other words... Think of the Mishkan, think of the Beit HaMikdash, think of the tabernacle and the temple, think of them, you know, hold up the blueprints and think of it as a blueprint for our personal spiritual lives and our spiritual, you know, experiences. So with that in mind, let's see what that means practically, text number five. This is one understanding of this, okay? I think you guys will appreciate this. All right, here we go. Every Jew is a sanctuary to God. As our sages famously said of the verse, make for me a sanctuary, God says, make for me a sanctuary so that I will dwell in them, plural, that God dwells among the Jewish people. Now, listen to this. There were three sections in the temple and also the, um, the Mishkan, both, right? Three sections. The Azara, the courtyard, that was the larger outer space, if you will, under the sky, the, the larger courtyard. There was a wall around the courtyard, but it was the open space, okay? Then section two was called the holy the holy was that space inside the, the Mishkan or the Mikdash building, inside the temple building, covered, right? The covered building was the larger section was called the Kodesh, the holy. And there was another chamber inside that chamber. The deepest chamber was called the Kodesh HaKadashim, the holy of holies, in which stood the ark, the Aron, the ark. So in similar fashion, there are three sections in every Jew's personal temple. So again, if we understand the physical um, blueprint of the temple, we can understand the blueprint of our lives as well. So let me just, before we go further, let me just uh, kind of describe this. So we have the larger area, which is the outdoor area. Then we have the indoor area, but within the indoor area, there's the, the regular indoor area. And then you have the indoor, indoor, the, the secret deepest chamber within the chamber. And we have the same thing. We have our outer lives, our inner lives, and our innermost lives. So here we go. Spiritually, the Azara, the courtyard, which is where the outer altar stood, represents the outer heart. Now, you didn't know that you had outer heart and inner heart, but now you're about to find out, right? There's the outer heart, not physically, right, but outer heart. The holy, which is that inner building, which contained the inner altar, is the inner heart. The holy of holies, the innermost space, which contained the and the ark, is the innermost inner heart, <laughs> the innermost inner, uh, the yechida, a level of, a, of the soul that cannot be opposed by any opposing force. I'm going to explain all this stuff. It is said, even of much lower levels of the soul, that even when a person sins, they remain loyal to God. That is, they always remain whole, eternal, and it is impossible for anything to exert control or affect them in any way. This level of the soul is the Moses that lies within each and every person along similar lines. The Aaron, the Ark, that is the Torah, is, is identified with Moses. And as, as it is stated, remember the Torah of Moses, my servant. There's a lot of words here and a lot of ideas. Let me make it very simple. So let's just talk about you and I. There's behavior. There's what we do. That's the outermost heart. That's like what we do. Then there's how we feel. 
Okay, so there's behavior and then there's feelings. So behavior is what faces outside, what faces the world. It's what I do. It's how I show up. It's what I do. But then, of course, underneath that, there's how I feel. Now, now you and I know, because this is our lives, right, that we can show up to work and smile, and inside we might be feeling crummy, might be feeling lousy, right? We might be, you know, on the outside smiling and being, and being you know, affected, but inside it's like, oh, whatever. Or conversely, what would the converse be? I don't know, whatever. So there's different realities. There's our, our, our um, revealed life. And then the hidden life, the, the, the internal life, how we feel, you know, how we really feel inside. But this is where Judaism takes it one step further. It's not just inside-outside. There's something inside the inside. There's the, the deepest part of the inside. And that is the Yechida. That's the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark is with the tablets. That's the holiest space. And the implication here, what the Rebbe is saying is, it's that deepest space that can never be compromised. When a person goes through challenge, when they go through trauma, whether the trauma is physical or the trauma is spiritual or it's psychological or it's emotional, it doesn't make a difference. There is a place of purity and innocence, a place of purity and innocence, a place of goodness and kindness, a place of love that can never be compromised, can never be blemished, can never be broken. A human being has an indomitable or something along those lines of the word that I may have mispronounced. A spirit that cannot be extinguished. It's like an everlasting flame. I was thinking about, you know, well, we have an everlasting light bulb, LED light, but <laughs> if you want to see what I'm talking about, right above our arc. But, you know, the Ner Tamid it's supposed to be evocative of that, the everlasting flame, which is typically put by the ark. By the way, the ark. That's our, our ark with our Torah. Not the tablets, not in the Holy of Holies, but the holiest space of the synagogue is right there. Right? And that's where the Ner Tamid burns, the eternal flame. What's the eternal flame? No water, if you will. I mean, I don't know how LED works with water, but, but conceptually, nothing extinguishes it. And if it does, you just buy another light bulb, whatever. So the point is that within us is a place of beauty, a place of purity, a place of innocence, a place of love, a place of, of spirituality that cannot be compromised. I, I, want, I want to give you a few examples of this because this is a very important concept. One example of, of just, of, of just in, um, picturing this in our minds is the difference between a coal and a flintstone. No, the difference between a hot coal and a Flintstone. So you take a hot coal. Imagine you have a barbecue, like old school barbecue, not the gas, not the pellets, not the Traeger, not, not, nothing so fancy. You got the old school charcoal briquet, it's the best kind. old school, just, yeah. You take one of those metal tongs, you take that hot coal, yeah, and you drop it into the swimming pool. Yeah, how hot is that coal now? It's not. It's not. Can you ever, can you ever, yeah, but here's the question. Can you ever resuscitate that coal or it's gone? No. That's gone. It's finished. It melts. It, it's, it's done. It's done. You can't reuse it. No. It's not, it's not obliterated. It's just unusable. It's unusable. At that point, you've extinguished the fire. It will never burn again. However, listen to this. If you take a flintstone, you know, like one of those stones that you strike and it produces the spark, you take a flintstone, drop it at the bottom of the pool, leave it for 10 years, 10 years, take it out, dry it up. You know what? It still works. You can still produce fire. I'm giving you an example. It's not my own example. It's brought in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. The difference between a gacheles, gachelet, a coal, and a tzur hachalamish, and a flintstone. And the difference is that one can be compromised, one can be extinguished and snuffed out forever, and the other one will always have the potential to burn. But inside, it's even deeper. Inside, it's always burning, not just has the potential to burn, there is a core, the core of our soul, and it's known in Kabbalah as the Yechida. Yechida means the singular essence. The Yechida, like Yechid. Yur, Chet, Yur, Dalet, Hey. Yechida. Yechida is like the singular essence of the soul that always remains connected, always remains in, in love with God. And, and I actually want to give you, I want to tell you a story that I think highlights this. There was once a fellow who was very upset at people. He became very cynical in life. He was probably burned by, you know, relationships or people or business or whatever, whatever it was. He comes, he, he, meet, he meets with the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he says to him, 
people, you can't trust people, people are horrible, they take advantage of you, etc. And he's just, you know, very upset. And the Rebbe said, you know, it's kind of, and the Rebbe sounded like he was agreeing with him, it's kind of like when you walk outside, oh, oh, and this guy was saying how, you know, people, they pretend to be your friend, and then they stab you in the back, and it's, can't trust anybody. So the Rebbe says, yeah, it's like when you walk outside. And you see like beautiful buildings and beautiful stuff. But if you dig, it's ugly. It's earth. It's rocks, right? It looks all beautiful on that facade on the outside, but dig, it's ugly. The guy's like, yeah, exactly. He says, but keep on digging. Because if you keep on digging, you know what you're going to find? The most beautiful resources, right? Whether it's diamonds or gold or oil. I mean, we're right right on Ponce. So I'm pretty sure it's Ponce de Leon. These were the the Fountain of Youth was supposed to be over here or something like that. Something. Some, so, some sort of guy convinced people that there was a fountain of youth here. If only we dug further, we could find it. But the point of the Rebbe was that, yes, there's three layers. There's the layer on the outside that might look nice. Go inside, and it's a little bit complicated and maybe even a little bit ugly. But if you keep on digging to the innermost space, that's where the true beauty is found. And the truth is, it's not, a, it's not exactly perfectly parallel to this idea that we're speaking of, but it's still important. There are three sections to the temple. There's the outer courtyard, the inner space, and the inner, inner, inner space. And the point is, that's what we have in our lives as well. There's the outer heart, the inner heart, and the essence. And here's the point. It's the essence that can never get destroyed. We said before that the Mishkan was never destroyed. Why? Because it was built by Moses and it had an ark. Oh. Moses is the innermost space. The ark is the innermost space. The Mishkan never got destroyed. So what does that mean for us? Our Mishkan, our core can never get destroyed. So yes, we may have had challenges in life. We may have been disappointed. It may seem like life has broken us down. It may seem like we've faced insurmountable challenges. How could we ever recover? We believe that there's a part of our soul that always remains pure, always remains connected. And from if we could only get in touch with that place... We can once again live. We can once again infuse our lives with real life from that place of essence that was never compromised. So this is the deeper meaning and the personal meaning of the fact that the Mishkan was never destroyed. The temples, those that existed, you know, maybe uh, more surface experiences, okay, they had their own, they had their own journey. But the Mishkan never got destroyed. So now I need to ask a question. So what does it mean for us, in addition to what I explained, you know, post by the way, um, one of my teachers, and many of you know him and have met him, he spoke at our dinner a few years ago, right before COVID, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, one of the Rebbe's chosrim, one of the Rebbe's um, um, human tape recorders listening and, and, and um, listening to the talks of the Rebbe and transcribing them and editing them and publishing them. So Rabbi Simon Jacobson, I used to go to classes that he taught in Manhattan back in the day, and he would often speak about hypothermia <coughs> and spiritual hypothermia. What's hypothermia? And this is coming from a non-medical, medically sound um, perspective. But hypothermia, essentially, when the body temperature, right, when the body is in cold water, so the body shuts down um, certain functions that are not essential or cools the internal temperature or whatever it is, like shuts down things to protect the most vital of organs, mm-hmm. something like along those lines, or the most vital of organs. So in a similar way, people who have experienced trauma, mm-hmm. right, yeah. will shut down um, other things and, and try to keep some measure of innocence inside. The point is that, that the soul, the body and the soul have a way of protecting the core. We have to know that we have that core, no matter what has happened in our lives, whether it's Again, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, it doesn't make a difference. We have that core of purity, that unbreakable essence, the yichida, that is absolutely pure and perfect and, and pristine. And, and from there, we can rege- literally regenerate life. So that's the message of the Mishkan. So if we, if, if we walk out tonight with that message, Dayenu, we have 11 minutes and I want to share more I want to take this further, but I just want to pause here for a moment and say, even right now, Dayenu, because this, this itself is a self-contained idea. And that is, the Torah tells us, just to recap what we've done in, in 30 seconds or less, the Torah tells us, Mishkan, Mishkan, which means that the temples were destroyed, but not the Mishkan, not the actual Mishkan built by Moses. 
built by Moses with an ark, and that refers to the essence, the essence of the yid, the essence of the soul, the yichida, can never be broken. Freud spoke about the id, the id, right? The id is complicated, but the yid, right? No, but the yid, ah, that's where I was going. The id, not the yid. The id is complicated, but the yid is even more complicated. Yes, even more complicated, true. But, 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 unbreakable. Now, I wrote a book once called The Unbreakable Soul. It was a translation of a discourse. Mayim Rabbim, Rebbe's discourse from 1978, right after his heart attack. Unbelievable. It's about the Mayim Rabbim, it's from Shir, Shirim Song of Songs. The many waters cannot extinguish the love. And it refers to the love of the soul, spiritually, the love of the soul. The soul's love can never be extinguished. No matter what material complications, no matter what uh, uh, things confound us, the bottom line is that it's unbreakable. And that's the message that's the first message. Now, but now let's take it further. Because somebody might ask, okay, so we talked about some trauma and whatever it is, but at the core we have a, we have a soul. But it, does that manifest, you know, does that essence manifest itself in another way? And the answer is yes. And I want to share with you a very interesting application, a very interesting um, representation of the essence of the soul vis-a-vis prayer. Now, why are we speaking about prayer? Well, we know prayer has a connection with the temple. What's the connection between the prayer and the temple? What's the connection? Um, Ever since the temple was destroyed, what do we do? Our, our, our lips instead of sacrifices. Our lips, right? The prayers take the place of the sacrifices. Right? This is um, uh, text nine. <laughs> Look at that. Text number nine. Perfect. Perfect segue. Let's do this inside. All right. I'm going to read this quickly. Text number nine says the following. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, the prayers, tefillah, tefillot, the prayers were instituted to correspond to the regular sacrifices. Since the temple was destroyed, so we have prayers. Now, let me explain what that means. In the temple every single day, there were sacrifices that were brought. The daily sacrifice was called the tamid. Tamid. What does tamid mean in Hebrew? Always. Always. It's literally the, 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 the ner tamid, the, the eternal flame. The sacrifices that were brought every day without exception, including, by the way, Shabbat and holidays, yes, they sacrificed animals on Shabbat, which means they slaughtered animals and burned them on the altar. Things that we, we are not permitted to do today. But temple exception. Uh, yeah, it's like diplomatic stuff. No, not, uh, diplomatic community. No, 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 I'm kidding. The same God that says don't do it says in the temple it needs to be done. So it's one of those things. Um, it's kind of like well, we, we, we don't wear woolen linen together, but in the temple there was woolen linen together in the garments. So just one of those things. Now, Shannis, yeah, it was used by the high, the priests wore the wore Shannis, woolen. Well, yeah, okay. yeah, it's good. It's good to be the priest or the high priest. Back to kidding, but back to this. It's hard to know when I'm kidding or not. I know, I know that. But maybe that's why we aren't allowed to wear it because it's only for the Kohanim. Reserve, right? Reserved for uh, for the priest. True. Yeah, Kenzine. Now here's the deal. When it was when the temple stood, and when I say temple, I mean the Mishkan, the tabernacle, one temple, temple one, temple two, for, all, for that span of years. And that span was probably like 12, 15, 1600 years, like a lot of years. When the temples and tabernacles stood, so every single day there was a tumid, two tumids brought, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. The first tumid was brought in the morning before any other sacrifice. And the, the second Talmud was brought in the afternoon after every sacrifice. It was the bookend. So it, was, it doesn't matter if somebody had to bring a sin offering, a holiday offering, a Thanksgiving offering. You could bring, anyone could bring any offering they wanted any day. Well, I mean, most days to the temple. But every day without exception, on behalf of the whole community, there was a Talmud. A little lamb in the morning, a little lamb in the evening. Right? One keves, one, one um, lamb in the morning. So the temple had little lambs that it would bring, <laughs> that it would bring, apologies in advance, that it would bring every day. Now, now in addition, whatever wasn't fully consumed on the altar during the day was put up at night on the altar. Thus, we have three prayer services to correspond to these three segments. We have a prayer service in the morning, which corresponds to the morning tamid. We have one in the afternoon, min- so that's shacharit. We have mincha, which corresponds to the afternoon 
Tamid, and then we have Ma'ariv, Ma'ariv, Arvit, the, the, the evening service, the night service, which corresponds to the sacrifices that were burnt in the night. Okay, so those are the three sacrifices. And that's what Rabbi Shuman Levi said, text 9, that the tefillot, the prayers, were a correspond to the tamidin, to the tamid, to the regular sacrifices, the eternal sacrifices. That's the way, that's the commemoration. So now we need to understand what this means for prayer. What does this mean for prayer? Because clearly prayer is connected with the temple experience. And we said the temple has an eternality and it's the core, it's the everlasting nature of the temple. So what's the connection between the everlasting nature of the temple, or the mishkan for that matter, and the, and the prayers that have been instituted for that? What's, what, what's the connection? What is this? How does it manifest? How does the unbreakable bond that we have with God manifest itself in the prayers that we recite? And I want to share an incredible idea. And to understand this, we need to look at text 11. I just told you about the three daily prayers. And if you know Jewish prayer, you know there are literally three daily prayers. But here's my question. Before, I, oh, before we do text 11, ah, hold on, hold on, hold on, don't look. Can you add a prayer? Yes. Text 11. Text, uh, you mean Musaf? But Musaf was brought because Mus- we do Musaf on Shabbat because there was an additional offering that was brought on Shabbat you and holidays. But the question is, can you add another Amida? No. The answer is, no. hold on, Ray, the answer is yes. yes no. Take a look. Take a look. Take a look. Take a look. Take a look at text 11. This is not well known. The text 11, the Code of Jewish Law says that if you add a personal request to your Amida, you can say an additional Amida. By making this addition, text 11, by making this addition of a personal prayer, one may repeatedly pray on a voluntary basis as many times as he, as he likes. Look at that. You can go, how many Amidas can you do? Till the cows come home. You can go Amida and go big and go home at the same time. You can do Amidas, all Amidas all the time. So this is very unusual. Now, we don't, most of us don't do this. We, we strive for the three a day. We strive to get, you know, to get the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. By the way, tonight is Rosh Chodesh. Happy Rosh Chodesh, everyone. Adar Shani, it's the other, other. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's second month of joy. Yes, Ray, jump in. You can't add to the prayers, to the Siddur. You can't add to the, you're talking about a personal prayer. So what? You can't add a prayer. You are, so if you do, if you do the three prayers, and you're like, you know what, I really need to do another Amida. You can do another Amida as long as you add a little bit of a personal request in the Amida. Now you can add. There's a section, Shmakolenu, one of the last uh, blessings of the Amida, where one is permitted and even encouraged to add in, uh, you know, some personal personal request. Yeah. So if you add in a personal request, you're allowed to do another Amida. Again, I'm not saying you should. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying it's technically allowed. So here's the question. Is it encouraged or discouraged? What's the deal? Listen to this. I need to read to tell you a story. All right, it's story time. You can read along with me. It's text number 12. You're going to love this story. And many of you are, are, many of you are um, familiar with this story. And the story... Magil, Magil, Choni Magil, Magil. Anyway... Yeah, my girl, Magil, Choni Hamagil. No, this is this is straight up schlock rock. There is an album called Schlock Rock. They were big in the '80s, and there was a song called Choni Hamagil. I remember the '80s. I was there in the '80s. I was very much present in the '80s. I was young, but I was '80s. Yes, I might have been young, but I was in the '80s. Magil, Magil, Magil. Choni Hamagil, Magil. Anyway, who was Choni Hamagil? Choni the circle maker. What was the circle maker guy? What was up? What, what? Choni the circle maker. So here we go. There was a famine. Story time. There was a famine and drought in the land of Israel for three years in a row. And the people prayed, but rain did not fall. Once they saw that most of the month of Adar. Oh. Look at this, how timely it had passed and rain had not fallen. And you know, it needs to fall before the spring and summer because if it doesn't, it's supposed to fall in the rainy season so things can grow. If, it's not, if there's a drought and then you go into the summer, you're done. So as Adar is approaching, as Adar is slipping away, they really needed rain after three years. So they went to Choni the circle maker. By the way, he wasn't called the circle maker then. He's 
but you'll see why from this story. They went to Choni, who would later be known as the circle maker, and said to him, pray that it should rain. He prayed, but rain did not fall. He then drew a circle. He was the circle maker after all. He drew a circle and stood in it. You're right. You see what's going on? He drew a circle and he stood in it. And he said, Master of the world, your children have turned to me since I am like a son in your household. And so I swear in your great name that I will not move from here until you have mercy on your children. He basically does a circle in. I don't know what that's called. You know, like uh, he just draws a circle. He's like, I'm not moving until you make it rain. God, that's it. Chutzpah. Rain began to drip down. He said, nope, not good enough. Master of the world, I did not ask for this, but for rain that fills pits, ditches, and cisterns. I need it really to rain. Make it really rain. So rain began to barrel down. The sages estimated that each drop would contain the lug's worth. In other words, it really started raining a torrential flood. He said, not good enough. Master of the world, I did not ask for this, but for rain of goodwill and of blessing and of beneficence. Then the rains fell properly. There was so much rain that the Jewish people went up from Jerusalem to the higher ground of the Temple Mount. Shimon, so, so, so bottom line is, it has a happy ending. He got the rain. Shimon ben Shatach then said to him, sent to him, to Choni, if you weren't Choni the circle maker, I would have issued a decree of excommunication against you. In other words, how dare you? I mean, if not because you're awesome, you were pretty chutzpah, you pretty, a lot of chutzpah, as they say. Had these years been like the years of Elijah the prophet, who swore that rain would only fall in Israel at his, at his word, would you have not caused the desecration of God's name? In other words, like in Elijah's times, if God decrees not to rain, who are you to tell God to make a rain? Who are you to say, God, I demand you make a rain? How, how dare you do that? Alas, there's nothing I can do since God indulges you like a father indulges a son and does his will. And by the way, this translation is being very kind. Some people say he said to him, or some people translate the Midrash as saying, he said to him, you're, bad, you're, you're like a spoiled child. You're a spoiled child who, who like kicks and screams, I want the toy, I want the toy, until the parent gives in and gives it. But like Choni, you're kind of like making, you know, pitching a fit over here. He says, bring me hot water, and he brings him. Bring me cold water, and he brings him. Give me nuts, and he gives him. Give me pomegranates, and he gives him. Give me peaches, and he gives him. He's basically telling Choni, Look at you demanding from God all, all, all your stuff. It was about you that scriptures that the scriptures say, may your father and mother rejoice and may she who bore you have joy. In other words, only a mother could love and could give in to such an obstinate child. They made, that day, huh? they made that day a festival. For rain only falls in the merit of the Jewish people. As it says, God will open for you his good treasury, the heavens to give your land its rain and its time. All right, the last paragraph we could leave out. Here's the point, here's the point. So Choni Hamagil... Choni, the circle maker, draws a circle in time of famine. What? what? She just loves the circle maker. Choni, the circle maker. I mean... Isn't that awesome? It's just so funny to me. It's <laughs> funny. Hamagel, like an uh, uh, eagle is like a circle. Choni Hamagel is the one who makes the circles. Some guy in Israel, yeah. Choni. He's Choni, the circle maker. He's the guy who makes circles. So it didn't rain. He draws a circle. He tells God, I'm not moving till it rains. A little bit of rain. No, I want real rain. Torrential rain. I don't want torrential rain. So his colleague told him, you're like, you're... You're very demanding. Thank, I mean, thank God God loves you, because otherwise it would be, it, that would be a lot, of, a lot of pushing God's buttons. But who was this Choni? Like, he was a tzaddik. No, but listen to this. Who's Choni? You ready? Hashtag, we're all Choni. That's what the Rebbe says about this. Hashtag, we're all Choni. You know what the message is? The fact that it was published in Torah, in Midrash. The fact that we study it. The fact that we're aware of the story. The Rebbe says teaches us a profound lesson, and that is that we're all meant to be like Choni. We're all meant to be those who demand from God. Prayer in the context of demand. But how, do, how dare we? Where does that come from? This gets back to the beginning of our class. You know why? Because we are God's child. Spoiled child. We are God's child. We are God's favorite child. The favorite child can ask for anything. And the favorite child gets what they want. Why are we the favorite child? Because we have the... Yechida, we have the essence. And now I've connected the first half of the class or the first part of the class to this new part of the class. The goyim don't have it? I, it? Everyone has it on some level. Everyone has an essential connection. And the point is like this. The God point God is, it's... Right. The but point... Asking. No, right. God, God loves all... Everyone. The Baal says that everyone should think of themselves like an only child to God. Imagine an only child born in the old age of a parent. Can you imagine how spoiled that child would be? That's exactly what it is. But here's the Rebbe's point. Let's not, let's not lose focus of the plot here. The plot is that every one of us can and is actually encouraged to demand of Hashem 
the greatest blessings. This is, this is text 13a. You've got to love this application. Here's what the Rebbe says. Text 13a, here we go. The story of Choni Hamagel, that's Choni the Circle Maker's prayer, teaches every Jew how to pray. Every Jew is God's child, as it is stated, you are the children of the Lord your God, regardless of one's status or circumstances. As the sages put it, this way or that way, they are my children. Therefore, the prayer that any Jew offers up to God must be in this manner as a child indulged by their father. In other words, take advantage of the situation. God loves you. you ha- yes, yes, you have. You have access. You have the essence. You have the yechida. Leverage it. This means, look how the rabbit fleshes this out. This means that you turn to God and firmly ask once, then a second time, then a third time, and so on. If you see that your request has not fully been met, has not been, met, been fully met, you say, that's not what I asked for. Like Choni did. I don't want a little rain, I want a lot of rain. Conversely, if you see that the blessing extended to you is so generous that you no longer have the capacity to receive it, you should say unabashedly that in your present state, I'm unable to receive this. And therefore, go ahead and ask for blessings that match your present state. All of this because you are like a child indulged by your father. God wants to give us what we want, what we ask for. God loves us like an only child. Now, even though this is the conduct of Choni Hamago, it's not how. Who, why are we choni? The sages have said that a person is obligated to aspire to reach the accomplishments of all great people, even the likes of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moreover, once choni and magal opened and paved this path, it became easier for every Jew to act this way. The point is that we're all meant to act this way. And what does it mean to act this way? It means to request, request what we need and what the world needs in blessing. Uh, uh, to request what the world needs in prayer. This is... This is the, I'm just looking to see if I want to do another text. I'm going to paraphrase it. Okay, so this is the lesson for tonight. All right, let me summarize. What we learned tonight is that the Mishkan, Moses' Mishkan is everlasting. What that means for us is that we have a core, the core of our soul is eternal. We have that bond, that indestructible bond with God that is at the core of our being. What does that mean? How does that manifest? And, and, and what's the application of that? Well, one application is our ability to pray to God and demand and demand things from God. Why? Because we have that access. See, if we didn't have that, if, right? If we didn't have that yechida, then who, who are you again? Like, who are you? Right? Like, but with the yechida, with the essence of the soul, we should demand. Now, the Rebbe says practically what this means is we should not be afraid to ask for, I mean, I'm going to say, we could say it in Hebrew or English. In, in English, it's world peace. In Hebrew, it's Mashiach. It's kind of the same thing. I mean, Mashiach is maybe a little bit more than just world peace. It's redemption and spiritual consciousness and, and you know, a, a world of world Mashiach is, but on a practical level, Mashiach is world peace. And I think that's something that we can all agree would be very nice to have right now. World uh, peace, yeah. right? We would love world peace, yeah. right? So the, is, and, uh, what we, so the question is, what do we do about it? And a person might be cynical and say, I can't do anything. I can't, what am I supposed to do? You have this world power and that world power, and no one wants to get involved because everyone's afraid. And so what are we going to do? Pray? How is prayer going to help? Take a circle, sorry, draw a circle, and daven. And daven again, and again, and again. And this is the Rebbe's message to us in 2022, March 2nd, 2022. The message is daven. Pray for what you need. And don't be embarrassed to ask. And don't be ashamed to demand exactly what you need and to spell it out clearly and to say, no, that's not what I wanted. I want it this way. And even though the Rebbe says, even though we know that God knows what he's doing, and so a person might say, well, God has a master plan. Who am I to intervene? It doesn't matter what God's master plan is. We're allowed to ask, we're the spoiled child. That's the message. We are, hashtag, we are the spoiled child. Embrace it. Own it. Enjoy it. Enjoy the status. Right? We are the spoiled child. Ask for what you want the way you define good and let the blessings fall. Let the the rain fall in the right way. Not too little, not too much. Three little bears. Three bears? Something like that. Not too little, not too much, but just right. So what's the moral of the story? Each of us has an unbreakable soul inside, which is life-changing on so many levels. To know that you have a place that's never been compromised, that's never been affected, that's never been blemished, no matter what you've done or no matter what's happened to you, that itself is, I said, dayenu, right? That itself is a lesson. 
couple that with the fact that that connection gives us access to almost demand from God what we need, that encourages us that at our next opportunity that we should pray for what we need and what the world needs. Might as well ask for Mashiach because that includes everything. Might as well ask for Mashiach. The Rebbe would say this countless times. The Rebbe says, you wake up in the morning and you dive in the morning prayer and you ask for Mashiach. You know how many times you ask for Mashiach in the Amidah? The Amidah has 19 blessings. We call it Shemana Esra 18. It's really 19 blessings. They added an extra one. So, so 19 blessings. Of the 19 blessings, I believe seven. Tesh Esra. Yeah. Who, who would have thought? Um, it, out of the 19 blessings, I believe seven are about Mashiach. Like a third, more than a third of the blessings are about Mashiach. And the Rebbe would say this, I, 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 I hear recordings, and the Rebbe says this again and again and again. You wake up in the morning, and you dive in Shachris, the morning prayer, and you demand from Hashem seven times in the Amidah, send Mashiach, restore Zion, send Mashiach, restore sovereignty, etc. And then Mashiach doesn't come. So what do you do by Mincha? You do it again. You have another Amidah in the afternoon. You ask again, you demand, and you say, and you say, Baruch Hashem, you say God's name. You can't say God's name in vain. You say God's name, which means that you're sure that it's going to happen. And then, Mayrif, Arvid, the, the, the nighttime prayer. You do it again, the Amidah, and then the next day, and then the next day, and the next day, three times a day. And you know what? We learned tonight, you can add more prayers. The point is that it should affect us. That's really the point. We should care. We should care enough to ask. And we should know that we can ask, and God will deliver. That's the message for tonight. So three lessons. Three lessons. In short, in short, you're going to wonder why, we, why, it took an hour and a, why it took an hour to do this. Three lessons in short. Number one, you have a pure essence that is absolutely connected with God, number one. Number two, you can ask God. You have access to ask God whatever you want. Number three, it should bother you enough to ask. Those are the lessons. So number one, you have the, 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 the pure essence. Number two, that gives you access to ask, right, for whatever you want. And number three, the important stuff should bother us that we actually ask for it. We shouldn't throw our hands up in the air and say, what can I do? The world's problems are too big. What do you mean the world's problems are too big? We have to demand. We have to ask for Mashiach. We have to ask and demand. I'm using that word intentionally. It's a word the Rebbe would often use. Demand Mashiach. All right. Good. Thanks, Question, pleasure. Questions, comments? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Tell a story. When I was like, when I was growing up, we had this thing called Junior Congregation. Yeah. And so I was about you know, eight or nine, maybe ten, I don't remember exactly. And I was trying to bring a bite in my, you know, breaking my teeth, trying to stay in Hebrew. And then I said, you know, pray to God, and I said, you know what? God speaks English. <laughs> Martin just told a great story. So he was a kid in Junior Congregation. And he's like breaking his teeth on the Hebrew prayers. And he's like, you know what? God understands English, which is true. Which is true. Especially if God loves us like we said tonight, which he does. I don't mean if, but given that God loves us. So um, certainly we can ask whatever language and as often as we need to with the right chutzpah like Choni Hamagel. Just channel your inner circle maker and then make it rain. Um, what else did I want to mention? Oh, tonight is Rosh Chodesh Adar Sheni. The first day of the month of, of, of the second Adar. We know that the Talmud says, We know that when Adar comes in, we're supposed to increase with joy. This year we have two Adars. Usually it's 30 days of joy. This year it's 60 days of joy. 60 days of joy. A double dose of joy. Here's the question. Are we tapping into the potential? And I'm, I'm not, I'm not, it's, not, it's not like challenging. I'm not like putting, a, I don't, I'm not like critiquing. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like encourage, maybe I am challenging, encourage the challenge that we should take up this challenge of trying to find that space of joy, that inner space of joy that we have, certainly we have inside of us, despite the challenges that we face. And with confidence and chutzpah demand that we have peace, we have Mashiach, and, and have that joy with that confidence that things will be good, please God, and please God very soon. Amen. So, yeah, thank you. Amen, amen, amen. And it should be good. And um, we also know, the Rebbe would say often, that Simcha parades geder. Simcha parades geder. Simcha breaks down walls. Simcha joy breaks barriers. What that means is, very simply, is that sometimes there's an obstacle, we don't know how to get around it. But sometimes the reason why we can't get around the obstacle is because we're in a negative state. We're in a negative mood. When we're in a positive mood, when we're, when we're in a state of joy, suddenly the barriers don't seem so big. 
So this means collectively we need to be in a positive state. It's, it's Adar, what can be broken down through tears, and Adar can be broken down through joy. Um, this is not meant to be a commercial segue, but I don't mind taking the opportunity that I've set up for myself conveniently. Apparently, we are, I'm, I'm announcing now for the first time, I think for the first time, maybe I announced it uh, privately in some other sessions, but I'll announce now, at least in this group for the first time, I think, that we are doing an event called the Joy Factory. March 24th, Thursday night, 8 p.m. It's a workshop, online only, because the presenter is up in Boston. Online only. It's actually Rabbi Schusterman's sister-in-law. His brother, Nehemia, is a rabbi in Peabody, Massachusetts. So his wife, Razel, it, Razel Schusterman is, do, is going to be doing something called the Joy Factory. It's a happiness workshop using um, teachings from modern uh, positive psychology with classic Torah and Hasidic wisdom. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a one-night only um, happiness, wor joy, um, happiness workshop, the Joy Factory. Um, we have not yet put out this information. This is just a pre-release info, just letting you all know about this. It'll go out probably in the next day or two or maybe early next week. Look out for it and join us. But before that, don't wait till the 24th to, 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 to stir the joy. Let's be, let's be positive. Let's be hopeful. Let's pray. And let's demand from Hashem that Hashem end the craziness. End the Mishagas. Right? God can do it. We also need to do our part. But part of doing our part is praying and demanding from Hashem. All right. Any questions or comments? It was wonderful. Thank you. Yes. All right. It was really timely. Thank Amazingly you. timely. Thank I don't you. know how you did that. How did you arrange the teleports? Okay. And yeah. the other thing is, is that where the expression to draw a line in the sand? You think it may be? Because you're drawing the line. You're saying, I demand. Right. Interesting. Could be. I'm not sure. We would have to look it up to see, you know, where that, 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 uh, that thing comes from. But certainly... Draw a circle in the sand comes from there. I mean, I would say yeah. that's, that's for sure. Um, maybe it got turned into a line. Right. Anyway, any other questions, comments? See you, Marnine. Thanks. Good to see you. All right. Good. We'll see you, Fred. We'll see you, Donna. See you, Joy. Bye, everybody. Steve, Adina Malka, Donna, Richard, Susan, Richard. Great to see you. Paul, Sarah, Ray, Karen. Hey, Karen. Good to see you. Hi. Steve, Lisa. Yes. Aren't there uh, more times uh, during the year when the gates of heaven are more accessible, like uh, during the Hila service? Yes. Sometimes we have greater access, but don't wait for the greater access. Jump in. No. Remember, as the child, think about it. To get to the king's palace, you know, sometimes there's days that are open to everybody. But when you're the king's kid, you just go in. And they're like, no, 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 the king's meeting with somebody. You're like, it's my dad. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm jumping in. It doesn't matter. The king will understand. He's my dad. So that's, that's kind of the mindset. That's kind of the mindset. Katerina, great to see you. Ariella, great to see you. I hope I covered everybody. Laila Tov, pleasure. Laila Tov, we'll see you guys soon. Take care. Bye.